everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Adventures in Machine Learning. I'm one of your hosts, Michael Burke, and I'm joined by my co-host, Ben Wilson. And today we are going to be talking about an applied ML use case. Today on the show, we have Ruslan Hamidulin. Um, he is currently based out of Lithuania. Um, I actually have a good buddy from there, so small world. Um, and he has a bunch of experience in iOS development over 10 years, but uh, he recently transitioned to a new project called Film U Stage. And Film U Stage parses film scripts to determine things like location, props, sounds, costumes, and sort of classifies those into different groups. And then from there, you can use a scheduling feature that helps you manage the location and times of shoots. I mean, that has some nice features like external tags from Google Maps. So Ruslan, how did you get into this project? Damn easy. We just started it back to 2018. So I'm one of the co-founders, and uh, basically, we my friend came with came to me with the idea like what we can do to improve the processes in the filmmaking. What can we do better? And I got some experience in development as well. I, I started to really dive deeper into the machine learning, and we came out with the, with the idea like. Okay, we probably can start a company, create a startup, and finally do it. So here we are. Got it. And I know you have a background as a musician and a sound engineer, but do you also have a passion for film, or was this your friend's idea? Uh, my friend is a filmmaker, but I'm a, I'm also a huge horror horror movie fan, so I'm I always was interested in the in in movies. Okay, and trying to find my way into, deeper into the industry, finally. Got it. Do you have a favorite horror movie? Exactly. Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. It's uh, the, the Thing, uh, John Carpenter's The Thing, 1984. Yeah. It's, by the way, the best movie ever shot. <laughs> Lots of practical, gross-out <laughs> effects in that one. Yes, yes. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely beautiful. Got you. All right. So um, I wanted to sort of use this as a potential case study for understanding how you use machine learning in an applied setting to solve some real world real world issues. Uh, so I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit on sort of the model stack that you're using. Um, uh, so, well, we started with an idea that we probably don't want to like stall the creative part of the processes from the people like we ain't gonna judge the material we ain't gonna cr generate text or something like this we just want to replace manual routing not very fun job for for the professionals so like script breakdown is pretty much it so basically you take screenplay you have to break it down into pieces and then extract words and copy paste it or write it down to somewhere like your cast names your props your location details etc etc different categories of meaningful types of objects so it sounds like a perfect task for machine learning especially named entity recognition so at that moment when we started to develop google bird was just released and we picked it as a entry point well, created a data set which is usually like 95% of your efforts and started to train and actually got really good results on top of that. So yeah, that's it. And how did you create that initial training set? 
well, we started by ourselves, actually, like introduced the format, how we want it to be marked down, got some special sauce on it. And we hired a team of students from university, like <laughs> next block, paid some, paid some money. So and we run like a, a few circles, a few rounds of uh, data set creation. And this is was like our initial data set. So basically, always the same. You uh, develop the structure, hire some people, or do it by yourself. Now it's super easy actually to do it. Like you have solutions like Prodigy AI, or so, how is it called? Yes, really solid tool for markdown. So that's it. And then, and then when you launch, actually, you get start to get data from your users, and this is what makes your data really nice, really accurate. Got it. And yeah, it's pretty common to outsource the creation of these of these data sets, whether it be via mechanical, mechanical Turk on AWS or just hiring some students. Mm-hmm. Uh, both can be pretty effective. Um, did you actually go in there and yourself label a lot of data, or did you outsource all of it? Like me personally, of course, we did like a huge, a huge percent of of job actually just to understand, to get the field. Once we were understood like how it works, where we have sharp corners, we just outsourced it and became kind of moderators, like taking decision. And yes, basically judging what changes we accept or what not. So there was no platform like Prodigy AI back then, so we had to create like our custom uh, front-end application just to process the data sets and uh, get the data, data data labeled. So actually creating the tools for the labeling took us more time than the data set creation. So did you design the sort of reinforcement loop into that front-end from the get-go? Well, yeah, some kind of. It was, it, was, it was really, really easy, but yes. So that's an important thing for for listeners of the podcast to think about when you're you're trying to do this stuff for real. Uh, a lot of people play with open source data sets that are already clean and relatively perfect, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and people are if you go through training like that, and that's what you've learned how to apply ML by using data sets like that. Sometimes you don't think about, hey, what if the data is not that good? At least your first pass. How do I exactly. make it better? What is that process of retraining and, and continual feedback? I yeah. think that, that's really great that you you thought about that ahead of time and said, we, there's no free data source out there for this problem. We yes. have to create it all. Like nothing, zero. And like I, as, as I mentioned before, the generation of data set is like 95 of your efforts, actually. And continuing efforts too. I mean, if you yes. want to continue to make your product better, it's a never-ending battle. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. So even with the structure of of a movie script that you or a stage production that you have coming in to mm-hmm. go through the tool, are there state are there conditions where somebody just submits something to that that you don't have parsing logic set up to process that? And it, it, you have some sort of fallback mechanism. We do have some fallback mechanisms. So first of all, the screenplay format is varies a lot across different productions and, say, screenwriters. There are probably some widely adopted 
screenplay formats. But in most cases, you just get what you get. So we created a sort of algorithm of algorithm of extraction, the data of exactly what we want to label, actually. And uh, this was the, the tricky part, to be honest. Then we created a data set for name intensity recognition on top of that. And now we're actually moving towards another layer of complexity going to... Uh, create a new way of PDF recognition as an intersection of OCR and uh, text recognition like in to get actually to, to be able actually to recognize like any imaginable format. If you're getting a script before production's even started, before casting's even completed. Yeah, it's like it's like the first point when you have like final, final, final draft of your screenplay is when you actually start to plan things like you need to understand what's inside and have some kind of really, really raw estimation like your draft budget, draft schedule, draft whatever, just to go to pitch the project, basically. So at that point, you don't have a composer lined up. You don't have an idea of like who's going to score this thing. Yes. Do you do something like a sentiment analysis of different sections within the script to say this is the mood and the theme that would most align to the the content of the scene? Well, not at the moment, but we're definitely planning to do something like this. And also we have a like partner company called Melod AI from mm-hmm. Australia who actually provide uh, AI-generated music and score for a particular mood and atmosphere whatever and we're going to our plan is to like assemble a whole bunch of companies like we are and uh, create some kind of a well infrastructure connect the client with the providers with with vendors different Mm -hmm. types of say location agencies cast agencies props warehouses etc interesting yeah, that's a really smart use case to all, everybody will specialize in whatever area of, uh, of their, of strength that they have. And then you guys yeah. can all work together and sort of make one plus one equal three. Uh, that's Hopefully. a really interesting yeah, business use case though. How would that, the logistics of that play down? I have no idea yet. So it's, it's, it's we, we have to figure, figure it out. So the logistics will probably be the most, the most, difficult part because in filmmaking as well is in any physical production the like the okay respect and the cooperation and basically trust to the real person means a lot i'm not sure yet if will be how it, how we can we like what what should we do about that got it yeah so I also was curious about uh, how you sort of moved from iOS development, which you have over 10 years of experience in, into this ML world. Uh, well, to be honest, it's uh, AI world is much more challenging than mobile development. Once you hit the ceiling, you kind of not much else to do. So I was looking for something more, especially I was... I was deadly tired of working on contract or be employed by by someone 
just wanted to have some just wanted to kickstart something something on by my on my own so and at the proper time i met proper people and we decided that okay let's let's do something about this startups were really on hype back to back to 2018 and we thought like okay if, if someone can do this probably we also should try got it and how did you select bert as your main algorithm well uh, it's a good question actually i, I don't remember how we selected bert but it was so obvious obvious solution like got the best metrics at that moment i believe and the ease of use and actually the level of documentation was good enough for us to start. Got it. Yeah, Ben, how do you think about selecting a model for, let's say, a use case like this? If we got into a time machine and went back to 2018, I probably would have come to the exact same conclusion that Ruslan did with reading the, reading the docs, reading a couple of examples, testing it out on some data sets, and probably would have been like, this is so much more advanced than anything else that's out there let's just use this now there's yeah go to hugging face transformers marketplace and look at how many versions of bert there is how many yes. versions of all these different sentiment models and classifier models and absolutely you know tell me what the next word should be in this sentence uh nlp solutions i think it's harder today to make a decision on what path to go on based on total amount of time. So I think you need more discipline now in order to restrict the things that you're going to be searching for. Check the most popular things and then check one or two things that seem to be more highly tuned and specific to your use case that you're trying to do. Do that research, evaluate just a few things, and then just go with something that works. Because right now you go to that that site and look at the marketplace and you're like okay there's 557 pre-trained language models which one do i try uh, it's daunting yes that's true but as for, as for me data set is still more important than oh, yeah. like particular particular model because you get difference in like in percent or sometimes in fractions of percent but the, the cleanliness of your data set it's really what's what matters 100%. And then from a from a model perspective, I think it's also important if selecting a pre-trained model that you're going to fine-tune is to look at the structural components of it. How many inputs does it have? How deep is it? A really quick and dirty sort of nasty way that I, I make that selection. I just download the model of a pre-trained model and I just save it to object store. And I just look at how big it is on disk with the native serializer. And some of these are, you know, two gigs. You're like, okay, that's big. If I retrain that, it'll be somewhere around that ballpark uh, in size. Other ones, you're like, okay, that's 55 gigabytes. Well, when that's in memory, when you're going to be doing retraining, how much longer is retraining going to last? That size of that model to the input count that dictates how much data can actually go into the model for inference. So with NLP, you truncate a lot, but you have to. So yes. how does truncation work? Are you losing context? Do you have to do a bunch of pre-processing in the tokenization exactly. steps? Exactly. There's a lot but of stuff the, to think about. But this, at the same time, when you work with text, you definitely want to have as much context as possible. So mm-hmm. the side memory like matters a lot. 
So you need a budget to run it on if you're going to retrain. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Speaking of, how do you retrain? Actually try multiple approaches like from local machines with powerful GPUs. Nowadays, I'm just using Google Collab. It's works just wonderful with premium subscription. They they trying to uh, charge more and more, but still the best. Got it. And do you have any sort of passive retrain uh, technology via drift detection or anything like that? Well, we are just actually we are in the process of uh, implementing this and experimenting this like to, to become it like more independent. And I saw that you guys use GCP for basically your entire stack. Is that because of Google Collab or is it because of backend processors or why did you choose GCP? <sighs> so obvious also, I don't know <laughs> these days. Well, also, actually, I, I started with AWS, I believe. I was kind of intimidated with the complexity of the platform and, and how how difficult it was to actually start and implement and make something finally work. I came from the world of iOS devices when everything works super smooth and you don't spend much time actually making things run when I started to develop for AWS. So, man, I spent like two weeks literally trying to launch some super basic setup and then I'm just and and also two weeks of <laughs> collaborations and meetings with a support team which literally led to nowhere and then I just started and I just tried to do the same on Google Cloud platform and I just in in a couple of hours I got I got a really raw and easy project running so for me it was a match it, it really expensive to be honest i'm actually thinking to switch to some more safe approach maybe digital ocean or something else when you when you start to scale and when your startup program ends you get you find yourself in, in a difficult situation actually yeah that and just for the listeners out there uh one of the basically main tenants that databricks subscribes to is there's three core clouds that we work with AWS, Azure, and then Google Cloud or GCP. Mm -hmm. AWS is by far the most mature. It's been around for about 11 or 12 years and has 33% of the market share. Um, and then Azure has been around for about five years and has roughly 22% of market share. And then GCP has been around for a little bit longer at six years and has 9% of the market share. But often being the, the first mover, there's a lot more growing pains. And when you're starting a company, you want to be the last mover and have the most effective tech stack. So GCP and AWS and Azure all, they do the same thing, but they have different UIs and different interfaces. Um, so it's interesting to see that Ruslan is is uh, going with GCP because a lot of our customers are on AWS or Azure. Yeah, and how you can com compare it? What's your opinion? Uh, I'll defer to Ben on that one. <laughs> Most certainly no comment. I think they're all wonderful. Uh, and they're all great partners of ours. So, mm -hmm. okay, uh, gotcha. <laughs> if if you're using the native systems that they offer, I think each one has a different appeal to a different subset of engineering teams out there, and they're all designed. They were all designed and came about from slightly different places. Mm -hmm. So AWS grew out of the Amazon core business needs for their back end. And then they said, hey, we built all this cool tech. Let's let's sell it and yeah, yeah. have infrastructure. Like, like make so much for money. Uh, uh, 
And then all of a sudden, whoa, it, it's making all the money. And then Azure is, I think it was more, it was coming at from a perspective of looking at users who would need to migrate extremely large deployments from on-prem to the cloud and make it make it as similar to what their on-prem experience would be. Whereas AWS, when you make that shift, it's jarring almost because it's so different than how you would run everything on-prem. And then GCP is more the Google philosophy. Like, let's make, let's make the customer user journey for what we need to like, do to get something to work. Let's make that as, as integrated as possible and, and simplify That's true. things. That's true. So I'm a fan of all three for different, okay. different things. It makes sense that GCP would, would be pricey if it's a sort of the more integrated and simple approach and you can get less low level and, and customize. I think so they're realizing sense. what people can do on the platform or they're seeing what people are doing and they're like, okay, we now people see the value of what we do and the, the buzz is is rising away from that level of just fascination that people have. And as we talked about last week on the podcast, we're like, oh, we're talking about chat GPT and these large language models. You know, Ruslan, you've been dealing with large language modules for years now. Other companies have been doing it for years or decades. So to people that have been doing it, it's not, when something like that comes out, people aren't like, whoa, that's amazing. It's like, no, that's cool. It's the next iteration in these things, but we've been yeah, doing yeah. this stuff too. We knew it coming. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, speaking of, what do you think is next in the, the large language model iteration or just NLP in general? Damn good question. I guess we are some sort of pinnacle, kind of hard to predict what next. I was sorry about it, actually. Maybe maybe you have something to add. What's your, what's your point on that? What do you expect? I'll always defer to Ben. So for context, Ben Ben has like 3,000 times more experience in the ML world than me and has worked with hundreds and hundreds of customers. Uh, so Ben, what do you think? I mean, I think what's going to be coming is more of sort of active reinforcement learning where your training process doesn't require retraining evolutions per se, but more of a an adaptability within effectively a session context, which ChatGPT and DaVinci, they do Pretty that. Pretty much does, the, yeah. But there's still, like you can interact with it and tell it constraints of what, how you want it to interact with you. So there's this reinforcement learning that's happening in the session. But if I close that session down and then start asking it this, you know, the end point questions of where I got to after having a, a conversation with 400 back and forths, it, it doesn't understand what I'm saying anymore. Yes. Because it was just that session that it had that context where we built up that chain of, okay, this is what I want you to do for me. Um, so the reinforcement learning aspect of it, I, I'd say on a global level, taking through some sort of smart uh, evaluation and secure means of not allowing itself to be retrained in a bad way, but take that session information and dynamically update uh, its 
its actual weight parameters in the model. So then you have something that approaches what you could call like general learning, where this machine talking to 1.5 million people a day starts amassing far more knowledge than it can by just reading the web. I think that's the next iteration. It's something like that. Yeah, yeah. And generating some sort of opinion maybe somewhere in, in deep inside the model. That's what would be really fascinating, actually. Because at the end, nowadays, what we got is like a, at the end, really, really huge archive of all the data available to to the model. But if it could make some kind of opinion finally on the data it got, it would be really interesting. But it's like more like a sci-fi <laughs> topic, I guess. Well, I don't know. I mean, sci-fi is getting pretty close to reality. If that makes sense, if it has sort of like a reinforcement component where it can learn itself and ChatGPT's code writing ability is is questionable, like it works, um, but unclear if it can write giant frameworks. And so uh, if it can start trying to write those frameworks, learning how to write frameworks and iterating upon itself, uh, that would be a a really cool uh, next step. Yeah, yeah, like a, a robotic plant producing robots. <laughs> yeah, precisely. Yeah, and it's unclear if there's enough compute power in the universe with this structure to make that be effective. Maybe we need to rethink how the, the algorithm itself is is built. But um, yeah, it's a it's a cool idea for sure. Would love would love to would love to live till we see some next step. Hopefully. Yeah, that shouldn't be too, too hard. Probably. <laughs> cool. So I had another question. And you're, again, your background is specifically in sort of iOS development. But then with this new project, you have to take on a bunch of new roles. And with that iOS development, I was wondering how you entered the ML world and thought about hiding complexity from users. Because there's a bunch of fancy tech in the back end. And ideally, it should just work, just like your experience with GCP. So how do you go about hiding complexity from users? Well, actually, when I was an iOS dev, I started to use some different kinds of automation tools more and more first, just to automate build processes, then to launch tests, then we added automation tests. And so I, I became more and more interested in automation itself, started to write and create more and more complex systems. And... Uh, Machine learning and uh, inference actually stacks very well into this approach. So basically, you create one, another automation system. So that's why the role of chief technology officer actually felt really natural to me. So for me, it was kind of a challenge quest to create reliable, uh, responsive stack of technology or structure at the Kubernetes on top of this and it's really a really good way to go and create applications in 2023, basically. Yeah, but more on the user experience side. So let's say I go submit a script. There's a bunch of complexity going on. I'm assuming you guys don't allow the user to tune anything or set parameters on how the model should be run. It should just work. Is that correct? Yeah, that's true. Not in the moment, but uh, well... We have some kind of understand understanding what the user would need to see in the 
like the most say default occasion and we basically sh- show him as easy as possible so we understood that we work in the industry where the users are not that proficient in technology as we do so we need to really deliver on one one click approach one click uh workflows and for me it's super important like show the value instantly that's it speaking of value does the tool do any sort of inference regarding potential profitability of a script or well well um not yet maybe there are solutions on the market who kind of try to predict the profitability but um for me it's a really complex topic because so much aspects actually actually affect the your and box office of your project. So as for me, it's nearly hard to predict the end, the end outcome because, okay, we predicted that your movie gonna make $1 million and then the epidemic starts or, or war starts and what we're gonna do with our prediction. So in such case, it's better not to operate with real money and real numbers like that. Let's Let's create some kind of rating instead like Right. This this movie is like A plus profitable. This one potentially C minus. That might work. So many latent factors affect, you know, how many ticket sales you actually get in what Absolutely. region that you're releasing. But yeah, what I was getting at was exactly what you said. Like, hey, on a on a scale of one to ten, we think that hey, the script that you just submitted is a one out of ten. Uh, probably yeah. don't want to to go forward with this one because yeah. and the previous screenplays we rated like a plus made this amount of box office and probably your your screenplay might do something similar but no guarantee here (laughs) but armed with that data you could almost create a profiler where you could give the uh, the end user the ability to build a cast and you could dynamically predict like how much does that change this rating scale True, true, true. There are actually a company like this. They call it's called Largo AI, and they are trying to do exactly this. I believe. Good luck. <laughs> yeah, that is not a. I don't think that's a simple problem to solve, like at all. For sure, for sure. Yeah. What are the most in-demand, potentially automatable components of filmmaking? It's a good question. Actually, I think. The creation of a shooting schedule is one of the most tedious and uh, potentially dangerous part and the most one affecting your budget. So once we find a good way how to connect the schedule with the reality, we also we're also going to create another wonderful tool for the professionals because um, there are so many aspects which affect your schedule, like I don't know weather or the change in particular cast situation, like someone got ill or something like this, and it all, it all starts to change but one by one really quickly. And nowadays there is a special, I don't know, special, special departments and uh, producers who just control this aspect of filmmaking. 
yeah, really sort of unsexy thought <laughs> about this just to, popped in my head. You could probably automate permit application filing based on the schedule and the locations. So if somebody says, yes, green light this, think about how many hundreds of human hours are wasted on that. Mm -hmm. Like filling out whatever locality required, like, hey, in order to film in this city, you need this city's permit. And then if it's in America, you need a permit from the state. If it's near the capital, you need like federal approval and it has to go to these agencies to have an automated system will say, oh, Oh, you're filming in D.C.? Here's the 37 permits that you need, and I've pre-filled them all for you. Would you like me to submit? And then just submit them all. That's right. Great idea, actually. I'm going to add it to my list of (laughs) stolen ideas. Thank you, Ben. Please take it. Um, But stuff like that, that's an an application of ML that directly affects profitability. It's not super complex, but it's super useful. Yeah, definitely right. I agree. Or stuff like if you're going to go on location to, like, hey, we're going to film in Northern Ireland. Well, how many people are on the cast for that particular shoot? Is that first unit, second unit? And then how many other people go along with the actors that are going to be shooting? So how many rental cars do we need to reserve? Exactly. So now, now we're, now we're try, starting to do something really similar. We're integrating a chat GPT model to our platform in order to like predict you the potential difficult or dangerous parts of your screenplay like you have children involved in this particular scene so you need to follow a particular rule of working with minors so maybe you have open fire scenes definitely want to have a few extinguishers on your set maybe there are like animals involved you want to have animal wranglers etc etc so we're adding like ways to protect you during your planning or even even shooting just to make sure you don't forget something careful on the liability for that though <laughs> yes yes no no guarantee sorry <laughs> yeah you have a, a d plus rating for safety for your for your set yes but make sure you, you double check everything yeah many years ago i uh actually my my first job out of the u.s navy when i got out was working for a company that makes uh, dvds and blu-rays for hollywood so part of that job was us flying over to Hollywood every couple of months and meeting with different studio executives. And we'd get these lot tours sometimes. And up until that point, I had no idea how movies were made, like how what layperson does. But I remember going into these different sound stages and onto these different sets and seeing it from from back while they're filming. And of course, being very quiet, not talking at all, um, but just watching like, yeah, there's, there's three people in front of the camera that are being filmed. And that's what we see when we watch a movie. And then you look around, you're like, Hey, there's 800 people in this building right now. Yeah. 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 And it's all of that stuff. Like each of those people probably have something that they do. Yeah. Assuming they're not, I mean, even if they are like a tradesperson. Like, hey, they're they're a gaffer or they're a carpenter. There's things that you could do with machine learning and with NLP and, and these use cases where you say, okay, you need, you're going to need to build a set and here's the description of the set that's in the screenplay. How much wood do we need to order? How many nails do we need? 
you know, how many windows should we order for this ho- this house of this type that's described? And you could sort of pre-budget out. Like, yeah, this yes. is kind of how much pre-production is going to cost for this. You're right. You're right. Or we have these kind of locations in our database or from our vendors who potentially could rent it for you for for this amount of time and we, and this would cost, cost that amount of money mm-hmm. and uh, to make it look like something in your screenplay you also probably need these props which you can rent from here or maybe making this on custom would, m- might cost you something like this yeah yeah definitely there are the, the ways to automate it and kind of predict the budget a little less yeah, I remember one of the things that we walked on to uh, I don't even remember the name of the the film, but it was some like pseudo fantasy historical thing. I just remember a lot of people in armor that were on set, uh, and it was like it was a bunch of a bunch of knights uh, that were in suits of armor, and as they moved around after the cameras were were off and everything, you could hear that it was actually metal that they're in. It wasn't you know, full reproduction stuff, but it was metal. And I asked one of the people there that was giving us the tour, I'm like, who builds all that stuff for you? And where'd you get all those swords? And I look over, you know, they, they point across the room and they're like, oh, look at that weapons rack. I'm like, okay, there's a hundred swords there, you know, in groups of 10, like 10 identical and then 10 identical. Like, who builds that stuff? And they're like, well, we hired an armorer to build it all, like an actual blacksmith. I'm like, that couldn't have been cheap. And they're like, no, like each one of those swords is $10,000. Oh, man. Like, okay. That's that's a lot of money. And where are you so, going to put it after your, after the shooting landed? There's a lot oh. of things to like think about with the cost of all this stuff. And just reading the text on the page gives you that insight if you, if you yes. have that connection. Yes, yes. True. So much information actually in the screenplay. You can get so much out of it, like to understand. Of course, you can execute different parts in a different way. Like you can, you may, you may have real explosion, or you might have a CGI one two days, and it will be absolutely different levels of complexity and valuation. Of course. How do you guys think about expanding into different movie markets? So you're currently mostly in European markets right now, but would you look to expand into sort of American or maybe Bollywood films? Well, it's actually like 70% of our, of our users are from the U.S. So oh, in okay. fact, we are, we are work more for American users, individuals at the moment. We're looking for a way to switch to studios and productions finally, because I get to finally about to get enough momentum to fulfill the more advanced needs of, say, production or or a studio working on the custom plans and integration. Uh, also, we got a lot of users from the UK as well as from Europe. Basically, that's because we were limited by the English localization of our platform till now. And that's why, of course, your the majority of, of your users would be English speakers. But technically, we're not limited to English at all with it was just easier for us to support and maintain the system with only one language now we are in process of adding more going to add european languages i guess german and french is the first one and then latin america with portuguese and spanish and then we're probably gonna go to 
India because it's in fact the volume of the market is even bigger than Hollywood. Surprisingly, they they shoot much more and much faster, and the amount of money it's just gigantic in India. Yeah, I bet it's a tough market to crack into, though. Yeah, but we got we, we got really nice guides. They will help us. <laughs> so, what happens if it becomes <clears throat> the tool becomes so standard and popular that a major American Hollywood film studio says, "We want you to just work on our stuff." Then I'll be probably buy an island somewhere <laughs> <laughs> at that moment. Well, I don't know. I'll be super happy. It will be a, a sign for us that we created something really useful for the industry. Great honor, as for me. So you would take the deal instead of saying, nah, we're going we're gonna to grow. We're going to get bigger ourselves. And we'll uh, handle automation was, more of your, your products. That was, that was your question, like selling everything to just one single player and not expanding to not providing our services anymore to the audience. I don't know the tough question, actually. To be honest, we always treated our tool and wanted it to be as accessible as possible. One of our key mission is to actually democratize the industry and lower the level, the entry level. Let's make, let's help indie and the uh, younger generation to do things faster and easier. That's it. So I know the people on this podcast are very into music. Uh, do you plan on expanding beyond NLP and potentially into audio generation? Uh, don't, we don't have that particular plans, actually. Maybe because I'm a musician and for me it's a sacred thing. Um, not that I'm not that enthusiastic about music generation about ai music generation to me it's, it all sounds horrible <laughs> it just shouldn't exist it's fun from the scientific and the research perspective but no please <laughs> same thing with stuff like generated uh scripts i don't know if you ever read any of those where somebody's like oh i can i can type in three sentences and it gen it'll mm -hmm. write an entire story for me and you read it mm -hmm. and you're like, kind of definitely Kinda. not written by a human or it's written by somebody who has no idea what they're doing. You find out, you know, it's it's an AI that wrote it. It's like, okay, clever, but it sucks. Yeah. Yeah. Same thing with music. It's like it learns patterns, and it it, it, it takes like an, a mathematical approach to music. Yes, but music it's is like, about breaking patterns. Exactly. So it, there's no passion in it. Absolutely. It can be technically correct. It's like, okay, it's it's like listening to a professional musician play through beginner intro lessons True. doing scales. It's like, okay, you can do a <laughs> one, four, five, one chord progression all day That's long. Challenging. Yeah. All right. Well, we're, we're about at time, so I'll quickly wrap. Um, so today we were talking with Ruslan about the use of machine learning in parsing film scripts to determine things like location and such and then building tools on top of that. So it's essentially extracting information from scripts and leveraging that information to make the film shooting process easier. And they have been using BERT uh, in the GCP system with Kubernetes. And that's a, a very, very solid tech stack. 
Um, and then one, one thing that stuck out to me also is that as we were talking about building these initial training sets, when you're working in a novel space, there aren't pre-configured data sets. So you usually have to go in and manually label data. And ideally, you'll outsource that. But Ruslan hit on a really important point, which is if you actually manual label data, you learn a lot about the use case, about the edge cases, and about all the weird quirks that are in that specific industry. And then finally, uh, it was really cool to hear about how they selected the model, um, basically reading docs and making it simple to use, but also looking at how it performs relative to other, other models is super relevant. And then Ben also mentioned model size. If you're looking to serve uh, and serve cheaply, model size is definitely a consideration. So Ruslan, if people want to get in contact, where can they find you? Um, the best way to find me, I think, is LinkedIn. So you look for our company called Film Stage or me in particular, Ruslan K. You can find me on our company website. So shoot me an email also. would love to hear from anyone interested in our stuff or in machine learning or anything else. Ruslan at filmstage.com. Please feel free to contact me. Well, thanks so much. Until next time, it's been Michael Burke and my co-host. Ben Wilson. And have a good day, everyone. Take it easy. Bye-bye. Take care.